Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm your host. I'm the pastor of a church in the southeast of England, Maidenbower Baptist Church, and together with my friends at Media Gratii, we bring this podcast to you so that you too can profit from the example and instruction of a man gifted to make known our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. If you're appreciating this or any of the podcasts that we've uh, brought to you, uh, then please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. If you have a moment, it should only take you a minute or two, uh, especially if you live outside the United States. I am informed that that makes a genuine difference. Uh, I'm not sure what difference it makes, uh, but it does make one. So please drop us a, 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 an appreciative note if you can. Leave us a review if you're able uh, I'm told that it does help very much. If you want more resources like this, then there's a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours and uh, other podcasts. You can visit mediagratii.org. And if you want to follow along with the daily readings, then you can find us at Reading Spurgeon on X. That's at Reading Spurgeon. And most days we'll try and post a few quotes from our regular reading. This week, then, we're reading Sermons 1,109 to 1,115. So next week, 1,116 to 1,122. As I mentioned, uh, we read daily, but recognizing that that's uh, quite a significant ask, every week we choose a featured sermon, something that helps us to understand the, the general drift and thrust of Spurgeon's pulpit ministry as it was published, first of all in the New Park Street pulpit and then in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. This week, our featured sermon is number 1114, and the title of that sermon is Onward. It was preached on the 25th of May 1873 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington by Spurgeon, and the text is Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the opening lines. So far as his acceptance with God is concerned, a Christian is complete in Christ as soon as he believes. Those who have trusted themselves in the hands of the Lord Jesus are saved, and they may enjoy holy confidence upon the matter, for they have a divine warrant for so doing. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. To this salvation the apostle had attained. But while the work of Christ for us is perfect, and it were presumption to think of adding to it, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is not perfect, it is continually carried on from day to day and will need to be continued throughout the whole of our lives. We are being conformed to the image of Christ and that process is in operation as we advance towards glory. The condition in which a believer should always be found is that of progress. His motto must be onward and upward. So lovely, simple, theologically sound, practically helpful, clear introduction. He goes on uh, later in the same paragraph. A Christian is compared to a warrior, a wrestler, a competitor in the games. These figures are the very opposite of a condition in which nothing more is to be done. 
They imply energy, the gathering up of strength and the concentration of forces in order to the overthrowing of adversaries. The Christian is also likened to a runner in a race, and that's the figure now before us in the text. It is clear that a man cannot be a runner who merely holds his ground, contented with his position. He only runs aright who each moment nears the mark. Progress is the healthy condition of every Christian man, and he only realises his best estate while he is growing in grace, adding to his faith virtue, following on to know the Lord, and daily receiving grace for grace out of the fullness which is treasured up in Christ Jesus. So, if you're in Spurgeon's congregation, don't expect to get comfortable. Expect joy, expect peace, expect confidence in Jesus Christ as a result of this emphasis, but don't expect to be able simply to, to ride a current uh, soft and, and easy. Uh, Christian living is not a, a bed of roses, it's a, a path of thorns. So Paul's statement in the text calls us to look at him under four aspects. First, as forming a just estimate of his present condition, then as placing his past in its proper position, then as aspiring eagerly to a more glorious future, and then as putting forth every exertion to obtain that which he desired. So you've got the present, you've got the past, you've got the future, and then you've got this striving for that desire. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, first of all, I want you to admire our apostle as putting a just estimate upon his present condition. He was not one of those who considered the state of the believer's heart to be a trifling matter. He's not indifferent as to his spiritual condition. He's taken stock. He is not a wise man who says, I'm a believer in Christ and therefore it little matters what are my inward feelings and experience. He who so speaks should remember that keeping the heart with all diligence is a precept of inspiration and that a careless walk usually comes to a very sorrowful ending. Most weighty is that word of Chrysostom, uh, that's John the golden-tongued, uh, one of the uh, fathers of the church. He who thinks he has obtained everything hath nothing. Had Paul been satisfied with his attainments, he would never have sought for more. Most men cry, Hold! when they think they've done enough. The man who could honestly write, I press forward, you may be quite sure, was one who felt that he had not yet apprehended all that might be gained. Self-satisfaction rings the death knell of progress. There must be a deep-seated discontent with present attainments, or there will never be a striving after the things which are yet beyond. Too many of us, I think, either get weary or get smug, and smug self-satisfaction has no place in the Christian life. Now, beloved, says Spurgeon, remark that the man who in our text tells us that he had not apprehended was a man vastly superior to any of us. The injury which self-content will do to a man, it would be hard to measure. It's the readiest way to stunt him and the surest method to keep him weak, Spurgeon points out. For here is this man, great by any proper measure, who nevertheless realises how far he still has to go. And then again, brothers, far too often of late have I come across the path of those who speak as if they have apprehended. Brethren, whose own lips praise them, who descant upon their own fullness of grace with an unction rather too unctuous for my taste. 
There are brothers abroad, he points out, whose eminent graciousness is not very clear to others, but it is very evident to themselves. And equally vivid is their apprehension of the great inferiority of most of their brethren. They talk to us, not as men of like passions with ourselves and brothers of the same stock, but as demigods thundering out of the clouds, giants discoursing to the little men around them. If it be true that they are so superior, I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. But my suspicion is that their glorying is not good, and that the spirit which they manifest will prove a snare to them. He asks, I don't know what impression it makes upon you, but whenever I hear a brother talk about himself and how full he is of the Spirit of God and all that, I am distressed for him. Great I, great I, wherever thou art, thou must come down. Great I is always opposed to great Christ. John the Baptist knew the truth when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. There is no room in this world for God's glory and man's glory. He who is less than nothing magnifies God, but he who is rich and increased in goods and hath need of nothing dishonours God, and he himself is naked and poor and miserable. Furthermore, says Spurgeon, we've observed that the best of men do not talk of their attainments. Their tone is self-depreciation, not self-content. Shallow streams brawl and babble, but deep waters flow on in silence. Of all the departed saints whom it has been my lot to esteem highly in love for their work's sake, I do not remember one who dared to praise himself, though I can recollect several poor little spiritual babes who did so to their own injury. If ever true saints speak of what God has done by them, they do it in such a modest way that you might think they were talking of someone five hundred miles away rather than of themselves. They have scrupulously laid all their crowns at the Saviour's feet, not in word only, but in spirit. When I remember these sacred names of the great departed, I feel it hard to have patience with the unspiritual, unholy boastings of personal holiness and high spirituality which are getting common in these days. Drums make much noise, but we know by observation that it is not their fullness which makes the sound. Again, he goes on, we've noticed that we ourselves, in our own holiest moments, do not feel self-complacent. If we get close to God, we don't congratulate ourselves and applaud ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. When we neglect prayer and self-examination, we grow mighty vain fellows, says Spurgeon. But when we live near to God in private devotion and heart searching, we put off our ornaments from us. Again, my observation of personal character has been somewhat wide, says our preacher, and I cannot help bearing my testimony that I am greatly afraid of men who make loud professions of superior sanctity. I have become very suspicious now of all who cry up their own wares. I had rather have a humble, timid, fearful, watchful, self-depreciating Christian to be my companion than any of the religious exquisites who crave our admiration." You really feel the the scorch of Spurgeon's grief and sarcasm against this kind of uh, smug self-applause. He goes on, let me add once more that whatever shape self-satisfaction may assume, and it bears a great many, it is at bottom nothing but a shirking of the hardship of Christian soldierhood. The Christian soldier has to fight with sins every day, and if he be a man of God and God's Spirit is in him, he will find he wants all the strength he has and a great deal more to maintain his ground and make progress in the divine life. 
Now, self-contentment is a shirking of the battle. I do not care how it is come by. You can reach then this self-complacency, says Spurgeon, by a great many roads. Uh, This is uh, really quite a substantial first point. It's going to be the bulk of the sermon, this just estimate of Paul's present condition. And he's now been digging in to show how accurate this should be. Now he's telling us that you can get to this state of self-complacency by a great many roads. I've known enthusiasts reach it by sheer intoxication of excitement. Antinomians come at it by imagining that the law is abolished and that what is sin in others is not sin in saints. There are theories which throw all the blame of of sin upon faint, others which lower the standard of God's demands so as to make them reachable by fallen humanity. Uh, All of these things, these are current problems. These are current challenges. These are present concerns. Some dream that a mere dead faith in Jesus will save them. Uh, Spurgeon's good here. He's he's, uh, he's mentioned antinomianism. That's a little more technical, but he's he's describing things like uh, neonomianism and uh, Sandemanianism in in practical language. He knows these errors, but he also knows how to point out their, their key practical features. Some think they're already as good as they need to be. There's perfectionism, uh, the, the sort of the Wesleyan argument. Many have fallen into the same condition by another error, for they have said, well, we cannot conquer all sin, and therefore we need not aim at it. Some of our sins are constitutional and will never be got rid of. They're making excuses for themselves. That's that's fatalism, not faith. Now, this is what Spurgeon says. I've used few theological terms because it does not matter how we get to be self-satisfied, whether by an orthodox or a heterodox mode of reasoning. It's a mischievous thing in any case. Preachers, you might know that technical language. You don't necessarily need to use it in your sermons, nor should you necessarily use it. What's important is not that people know how clever we are, but that people know what the issue is. The fact is then, my brother, says Spurgeon, the Lord calls us to this high calling of contending with sin within and without until we die, and it is of no use our mincing the matter. We must fight if we would reign. Our sins will have to be contended with until our dying day, and probably we shall have to fight upon our deathbed. Therefore, every day we are bound to be upon our watchtower against sin around and within us. It is of no use our deluding ourselves with pretty theories, which act only as spiritual opium to cause unhealthy dreams. Sin is a real thing with each one of us. Must be daily wrestled with. There is an evil heart of unbelief within us and the devil without us and we must watch and pray and cry mightily and strive and struggle and own that we have not yet apprehended. If we dream that we are at the goal already, we shall stop short of the prize. The full soul loathes the honeycomb. A man full of self cares for nothing more. Shake off these slothful bands, my brothers. Quit you like men. Be strong. You are as weak as others and as likely to sin. Watch therefore and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. What is it then at bottom, he asks? Same point, uh, same uh, main thrust that makes men contented with themselves. Here are some suggestions. First of all, a forgetfulness of the awful holiness of the law of God. If the law of the Ten Commandments is to be read only as its letter runs, I could imagine a man's judging himself and saying, I have apprehended. But when we know that the law is spiritual, how can we be self-complacent? 
My dear brother, if you think you've reached its perfect height, I ask you to hear these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Can you say, can you really say in the sight of a heart-searching God, I have fulfilled all that? If you can, I'm staggered at you and think you the victim of a strong delusion which leads you to believe a lie. He goes on, that brothers who can take delight in themselves must have lost sight of the heinousness of sin. The least sin is a desperate evil, an assault upon the throne of God, an insult to the majesty of heaven. The only way you can think you've arrived is if you've forgotten what a fearful, dreadful thing sin is. Then again, in such cases, there's a failure to understand the highest standard of Christian living. If we measure ourselves among ourselves, there are many believers here who might be pretty well satisfied. You're as generous as other Christians are, considering your income. You're as prayerful as most other professors, and as earnest in doing good as any of your neighbors. If you're worldly, you're not more worldly than most professing Christians nowadays, and so you judge yourselves not to be far below the standard. But what a standard! Let's seek a better Brothers, it's a very healthy thing for us who are ministers to read a biography like that of McChain. That's Robert Murray McChain and the Banner of Truth publish uh, his biography and his letters and his sermons with it. So says Spurgeon. Uh, that was me, by the way, not Spurgeon reminding you that the Banner of Truth publish. Read that through if you're a minister and it will burst many of your windbags. You will find yourselves collapse most terribly. Take the life of Brainerd among the Indians, or a Baxter in our own land. Think of the holiness of George Herbert, the devoutness of Fletcher, or the zeal of Whitfield. Where do you find yourself after reading their lives? Might you not peep about to find a hiding place for your insignificance? So when we mix with dwarfs, we think ourselves giants, but in the presence of giants, we become dwarfs. When we think of the saints departed and remember their patience in suffering, their diligence in labour, their ardour, their self-denial, their humility, their tears, their prayers, their midnight cries, their intercession for the souls of others, their pouring out their hearts before God for the glory of Christ, why we shrink into less than nothing and find no word of boasting on our tongue. If we survey the life of the only perfect one, our dear Lord and Master, the sight of His beauty covers our whole countenance with a blush. He is the lily, we are the thorns. He is the sun, and we are as the night. He is all good, and we are all ill. In his presence, we bow in the dust, we confess our sins and count ourselves unworthy to unloose his shoe latchets. And then, it's to be feared that there is springing up in some parts of the Christian church a deceitful form of self-righteousness which leads even good people to think too highly of themselves. It's a fashionable form of fanaticism, he says, very pleasing to the flesh. It's very easy to frequent Bible readings and conferences and excited public meetings and to fill oneself with a gas of self-esteem. A little pious talk with a sort of Christians who always walk on high stilts will soon tempt you to use the stilts yourself. But indeed, dear brother, you are a poor, unworthy worm and a nobody, and if you get one inch above the ground, you get just that inch too high. Many of us, he says, are exceedingly good-tempered when nobody provokes us. Some are wonderfully patient because they have a sound constitution and have no racking pains to endure. Others are exceedingly generous 
because they have more money than they want. A ship's seaworthiness, though, is never quite certain till she's been out at sea. Now, the next three points are each very, very brief in comparison with that first one. It's a real uh, developed study in smug self-satisfaction, and it's a broadside against it. Paul understands that he has not yet attained, he has not yet apprehended, and Spurgeon asks, what then makes us think that we have? And then he tells us, and he exposes the reasons why we might come to that foolish conclusion. So that's really the the groundwork of the sermon. He's laid a deep and broad foundation. And now, having looked at Paul's present assessment, we go to the past quickly, we go to the future briefly, and then we look at Paul's aspirations, Paul's exertions toward that which he desires. So the second, third, and fourth points of this four-pointer, Paul places the past in its true light. And he says you need to follow out the figure which he's using. You need to understand this athletic metaphor. Uh, The Grecian games, you you cannot afford to turn around and think about how far you've already covered. Never mind then, though you've run so far, you must let the space which lies between you and the goal engross all your thoughts and command all your powers. So he says, don't look back. You must consider how far you've got to go. Perhaps at this moment you might honestly say, I've overcome a very fierce temper, or I have bestirred my naturally indolent or lazy spirit. Thank God for that. Stop long enough to say thank God for that, but do not pause to congratulate yourselves as though some great thing had been done, for then it may soon be undone. Perhaps the very moment you're rejoicing over your conquered temper, it will leap back back upon you like a lion from the covert, and you will say, I thought you were dead and buried, and here you are roaring at me again. The very easiest way to give resurrection to old corruptions is to erect a trophy over their graves. They will at once lift up their heads and howl out, We are alive still! It's a great thing to overcome any sinful habit, but it is needful to guard against it still, for you have not conquered it so long as you congratulate yourself upon the conquest. And so, he says, that's true with all the work for Jesus which we have done. He talks about people, he talks about churches, and he talks about denominations. Some people seem to have very good memories as to what they have performed. They used to serve God wonderfully when they were young. They began early and were full of zeal. They can tell you all about it with much pleasure. In middle life they wrought marvels and achieved great wonders. But now they rest on their oars. They're giving other people an opportunity to distinguish themselves. Their own heroic age is over. Dear brother, as long as ever you are in this world, forget what you have already done and go forward to other service. Now from individuals to churches. Living on the past is one of the faults of old churches. We, for instance, as a church, may begin to congratulate ourselves upon the great things God has done for us, for we shall be sure to put it in that pretty shape, although we shall probably mean the great things we have done ourselves. After praising ourselves thus, we shall gain no further blessing, but shall decline by little and little. The same is true of denominations, again, going upward and outward in terms of size and scope. What acclamations are heard when allusion is made to what our fathers did? Oh, the name of Carey and Nib and Fuller. 
We Baptists think we have nothing to do now but go upstairs and go to bed, for we have achieved eternal glory upon the names of these good men. And as for our Wesleyan friends, how apt they are to harp upon Wesley and Fletcher and Nelson and other great men. Thank God for them. They were grand men. But the right thing is to forget the past and pray for another set of men to carry on the work. We should never be content, but on, on, on should be our cry. The Christian church is the child of spiritual war. She only lives as she fights and rides forth conquering and to conquer. God, deliver us from the self-congratulatory spirit, however it may come, and make us long and pine after something better. So now the third point. We've had the present. We've had the past. Paul has put those in their right places onto the future aspiring eagerly to make it glorious. For he says, reaching forth unto those things which are before. And that's how the Christian should always be, not only as devout and earnest and useful as he can be, but panting to be a great deal more so, spurring this old flesh and striving against this laggard spirit if perchance he can do more. Brethren, we ought to be reaching forward to be like Jesus. Again, you go back to that first emphasis. If Paul is so yearning, if Paul is so striving, if he wants his future to exceed his past and to obliterate his present, then how much more should we? He says, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we should do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what we are to seek after, Spurgeon calls us, praying always in the Holy Ghost to be sanctified holy, spirit, soul and body. It's a wonderfully high standard, says one. Would you like me to lower it, brother? asks Spurgeon. I should be very sorry to have it lowered for myself. If the highest degree of holiness were denied to any one of us, it would be a very heavy calamity. Is it not the joy of a Christian to be perfectly like his Lord? Who would wish to stop short of it? To be obliged to live under the power of even the least sin forever would be a horrible thing. No, we never can be content short of perfection. We will reach forward towards that which is before. And now the fourth and final heading. The apostle is our model because he puts forth all his exertions to reach that which he desires. And so says Paul, this one thing I do, as if he had given up all else and addicted himself to one sole object, to aim to be like Jesus Christ. There were many other things Paul might have attempted, but he says, this one thing I do. He was a poor speaker, says Spurgeon. Why didn't he try and make himself a rhetorician? No, not with excellency of speech. You tell me Paul was busy busy with his tent making. I know he was. What with tent making, preaching and visiting, watching night and day, he had more than enough to do. But all these were part of his pursuit of the one thing. He was labouring perfectly to serve his master and to render himself up as a whole burnt offering unto God. I invite every soul that's been saved by the precious blood of Christ, says Spurgeon, to gather up all its strength for this one thing, to cultivate a passion for grace and an intense longing after holiness. Ah, if we could but serve God as God should be served and be such manner of people as we ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness, we should see a new era in the church. The greatest want of the church at this day is holiness. So Paul has the crown in view, the crown of life that does not fade away and it's hanging brightly before his eyes. What's going to tempt him from this path? 
Heaven, 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 says Spurgeon, is not this enough to make a man dash forward in the road thither. The end is glorious. What if the running be laborious? When there's such a prize to be had, who will grudge a struggle? Paul pressed forward towards the mark for the prize of his high calling in Christ Jesus. He felt he was a saved man, and he meant through the same grace to be a holy man. He longed to grasp the crown and hear the well done, good and faithful servant, which his master would award him at the end of his course. Brethren and sisters, I wish I could stir myself and stir you to a passionate longing after a gracious, consistent, godly life, yea, for an eminently, solidly, thoroughly devoted and consecrated life. You will grieve the Spirit if you walk inconsistently. You will dishonor the Lord that bought you. You will weaken the church. You will bring shame upon yourself. Even though you be saved so as by fire, it will be an evil and a bitter thing to have in any measure departed from God. But to be always going onward, to be never self-satisfied, to be always laboring to be better Christians, to be aiming at the rarest sanctity, this shall be your honor, the church's comfort, and the glory of God. May the Lord help you to perfect holiness in the fear of God. I think most of the sermons that Spurgeon preaches like that are uh, at least have something to say, uh, often right at the end there, toward the unconverted. But it seems that on this occasion, although uh, Spurgeon has uh, implied certain things, his particular concern, uh, and it's very unusual that he should be so taken up with it that he should have relatively little to say to the unconverted, is that we should not fall then into this spiritual smugness, this uh, self-satisfaction. There is no room for it in the Christian life, and for all his evangelistic fervor, Spurgeon never lets slip the connection between salvation and true godliness, so that while we rejoice in Christ's work for us as complete, we recognize that the Spirit's work in us is ongoing, and that engages all our powers to do the Master's will. Thank you again for listening. I trust it has been a blessing to your soul. I hope they'll continue to be so. Again, do uh, listen to what's already available. Listen, God willing, if he spares us and helps us to what lies ahead. But we trust that by uh, following in the footsteps of a Spurgeon, hearing his heart beat for Christ and the glory of God in the lives of the church, that you and, and, and me and, and others who are listening, that we together would be stirred up to seek after him. Do join us then next week, uh, sermons 1116 to 1122, and our featured sermon is 1121, and it's Christ asleep in the vessel. Christ asleep in the vessel. Join us then, God willing, and thank you.